Forgiveness. Why do we need another message on forgiveness? If you remember some four months ago, our Pastor Caleb preached a message from Colossians chapter 3 and verse 13. And in that message, he did a masterful job of talking about forgiveness and uh, was very thorough. And uh, I don't plan to go back over all the material that is there. Maybe we'll touch on some points. <clears throat> Why did I want to preach on forgiveness? Well, I couldn't stop thinking all week long. I had other messages that I was thinking about preaching, but I, I just kept coming back to uh, Pastor Matt's message last week. And uh, one particular matter was the amazing forgiveness that Joseph had for his brothers. Did that strike you? Um, where did he get that idea to forgive his brothers? Well, I, we don't have any indication, but I have an idea that Joseph knew the Scriptures. And he knew that God was a loving and kind God, and that God, Jehovah God, loves forgiveness. He loves to forgive the sinner. How would he know that? Well, I believe that he would have understood the first gospel preached to Adam and Eve soon after the fall, where he said that Satan's head would be crushed, though his own heel would be crushed, this seed would crush Satan's head, destroying forever, really the author of sin. God loves to forgive. His love to forgive His creation, I believe, springs for, from the love that was found among the persons of the Trinity from eternity past, if we can even use that term. Seems like a time term, but there is no time with God. Why do I think of that? Well, in John chapter 17, Jesus mentions the love that he had, the mutual love between him and the Father that they had. And from that, I, I believe that the love that God has, the loving kindness that God has toward his creation, he could have immediately... The promise was that the day that you sin, the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. They did die. They were separated from the holy God. But they didn't die physically. They didn't die eternally, a second death, what is revealed to us later, in, later on in the Scriptures. 
But he loved them and he provided a way for them to be forgiven. And so this love springs from the love that God has among the persons of the Trinity. There are places that uh, uh, God gives these promises of forgiveness in the Old Testament. And these are uh, metaphorical kinds of ideas. Uh, He says this in Isaiah 44 and verse 22. He says, I have blotted out thy transgressions. Or I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions, as a cloud thy sins. So that presents to us a a wonderful picture. Isaiah 38 and verse 17, he he says, uh, the the author says, you, referring to God, you have cast uh, my sins behind your back. In Jeremiah chapter 50, In verse 20, the picture there is that one is seeking, is looking diligently for the sins, and they can't be found. In Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, it begins. And later on in verse 12, he uses this phrase, the psalmist, as far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. Aren't these precious verses? In Micah 7, 19, you will cast all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Isaiah 1, 18. Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as wool. Though they be red like crimson, they'll be white as snow. I think I probably messed that up, but you get the idea, right? And then the passage that was read in this great promise in Jeremiah 31 of the new covenant which Jesus quoted uh, as he was about to die. This is the new covenant in my blood, he said. And in that very passage, in the last verse that we read, I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. This is the genius of forgiveness. God loves to forgive But there's a problem. And uh, it theologians find in Exodus chapter 34, this enigma, some have said, this paradox, there's a barrier to God's forgiveness, you know. Here's another very precious promise. And it's couched in this section in Exodus where Moses is having this personal conversation with Jehovah God. And uh, Jehovah tells him, I know your name. I know you by name. Twice he says that in chapter 33. And uh, Moses says, I want to get to know you, God. 
And in the latter part of chapter 33, God reveals himself in a kind of a shadowy kind of way. He hides uh, Moses in, uh, the, behind an edge of rock, and his glory passes by, and Moses sees a glimpse of his glory. And then in chapter 34, he says this, And the Lord descended in a cloud. He had given Moses instruction to go write the law again on stone again. And and in verse 5, And the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. What did he proclaim? The Lord, the Lord God, Merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. There it is. There is forgiveness. Keeping mercy for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And here's the catch. Maybe you've memorized this verse. And will by no means... Clear the guilty. And herein is the enigma. How can a just and holy God forgive those that, that have rebelled against him, have blasphemed him, have broken his law at every step, that stand guilty, that stand condemned. Here's the problem. Is there any solution? Now, most of you here could stand up and tell me, yes, there is a solution. I know it. I know it. (laughs) The solution, the best place that I think of to go to talk about the solution is a passage that has captivated my heart uh, over the last three or four years in Isaiah 53. It's a passage of the suffering servant. We've talked about it before, not too long ago. And it's uh, the song of the servant, the song of the suffering servant. There are five stanzas. And, uh, you know, um, I love the genius of the uh, Old Testament writers. I, I used to think that, uh, that those uh, um, cross-shaped uh, analysis of poetry was just some, something that some preacher made up. And the more I got to looking at it, sure enough, there it is in the Scripture just perfect. And so the, you remember what Pastor Matt and Pastor Caleb have taught us that, that oftentimes the main point of a, of a particular poem or passage is right in the center. Uh, sometimes in English, we'll give the main point at the beginning and we'll reiterate it at the end. But the main point is found in the center. And I want to read these few verses to you. The central, uh, uh, um, Stanza, in these five stanzas, reads this way in my Bible. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. 
Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded, get this, for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And get this, the Lord Jehovah hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Here we find a substitute. That's the answer to to the dilemma. One that will stand in our place as if he was standing in your place. Don't you know Barabbas? I, I don't know what happened to Barabbas. But he probably had a sense of, of relief that Jesus took his place. It wasn't, he wasn't just his representative. He was on the cross instead of Barabbas. And Jesus was on the cross instead of me. And Jesus was on the cross instead of you. You deserve it, you know. I don't want to be unkind, but you deserve it. I deserve it. I stand at one time, I stood guilty. I was guilty in trespasses and sins. I worked out and was working for the lusts of my flesh and my heart and my mind. And I blasphemed God. I put idols in front of God. I hated people. I disobeyed my mom and dad and disrespected them. I stole. I lied. Guilty. 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 And what what did that passage in... Uh, Exodus 34 say he will not clear the guilty I needed someone to stand in my place and so here is the solution to that paradox at each one of these points I could linger on and and keep uh, uh, preaching a message uh, probably that would last an hour each one All right, so I'm trying to show some discipline here There is the substitutionary, the penal substitutionary death of Christ. The atonement. That word penal, there is a penalty, a judicial penalty that must be paid. In the court of God, we are guilty. We stand guilty and we must die. Die eternally. We have offended an eternal God. But Christ, in a moment, at a particular time, being infinite himself, died for an infinite number of people, for their infinite punishment. Jesus Christ was punished 
by God the Father. A little later on in Isaiah, it says, uh, <clears throat> It pleased the Lord Jehovah to bruise him. He, God, put him to grief. It was God. The Lord Jehovah laid on him the sins of us all. So there is the solution to this problem. Yes, God is a God of uh, forgiveness. He loves to forgive. He is loving. He is kind. He is merciful. He is forgiving. He is also just. And so justice must be served. And Christ died. Let's go to the New Testament. And uh, I want to thumb around in a few passages in the New Testament. In Luke chapter 1, this is the account of uh, Zacharias. When he finally was able to speak, you remember that uh, John Baptist was his son. And uh, he begins in verse 68 by Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. I won't read the whole thing, but he comes down to verse 77 in our Bibles, and he's speaking of Jehovah, that's one that is the prophet that his son is going to be the forerunner for. And he says this about that one that will come. And you remember what John said about Jesus. He said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. And this is what Zacharias said about the Messiah. He said that he will give knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of sins. And I'm, my mind goes, how did Zacharias know this? This one, this Messiah, was going to deal with sins. He understood. He probably read Isaiah 53, don't you suppose? Let's turn over to uh, another passage. In Matthew chapter 9, uh, I, this is fascinating to me. Jesus, God the Father, loves to forgive God loves to get, forgive. Jesus, being God, loves to forgive. Listen to these words. <clears throat> there was a, one brought to him, a man sick of the palsy. He was lying on a bed. And Jesus, Jesus saw their faith and said to them, uh, to the sick of the palsy, Son, be of good cheer. Thy sins be forgiven thee. And behold, a certain of the scribes that said within themselves, this man blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Wherefore do you think this evil in your hearts? Is it easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Rise and walk? And then get the next verse. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. Wait a minute, what the, what the Pharisees said was true. Only God has the power to forgive sins. 
But Jesus is saying, but the Son of Man himself, he's, that's the, his favorite title for himself, the Son of Man. And that harkens back to a passage in Daniel about the Son of Man that sits at the right hand of the glory of heaven. Sits at the right hand of the anointed, uh, the ancient of days. So the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. And what Jesus is doing is proclaiming that He is God. He can forgive sins. And then He says to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up, and go to your house. And He got up and departed to His house. And the people all around saw it, and they marveled, and they glorified God, which had given such power to men. And you remember other places. There was once a woman who was a known sinner. She, that was her reputation. It was a public sin. And she came up behind Jesus, and she had some ointment, and she broke the bottle of ointment, and she began to wash his feet with that ointment. And the Simon who was there, and the Pharisees were there, and and they said, uh, boy, what's going on here? This man, this prophet, this supposed prophet is allowing this sinning, this sinner woman to, this publicly sinful woman to wash his feet and to touch him and to adore him. And Jesus told a parable about uh, uh, one, who do you suppose would love more? One who had a lot of sins that were forgiven or one that had a few sins that were forgiven? And Simon said, well, I suppose the one who had many sins. And uh, Jesus made his point. This woman loved him. Loved him because he had forgiven her sins. The woman taken in adultery in John chapter 8. What did Jesus say to her? Neither do I condemn you. Go, sin no more. God loves to forgive. Jesus loves to forgive. He gave himself on the cross to die, to suffer cruel mocking, to suffer physical pain, to suffer in some inscrutable way, the separation between him and God. He bore the sins. And the last thing in this love of Christ to forgive, at the very time he was hanging on the cross, what did he say? Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. So here is the person of God. He loves to forgive. There are promises in the Old Testament regarding forgiveness. There is a barrier, a problem. But the Lord Jesus Christ, in his satisfactory payment for sin, solved that problem. And there 
must be a personal application of this. It's not enough just to know the story, you see. It's not enough just to uh, hear the words of Jesus, to know that God forgives. It has to be appropriated. It has to be taken to yourself. And most of you here know what I'm talking about. At some point in your life, you confess with your mouth that Jesus was Lord and you believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And the promise of God is at that point, you'll be born again. The new birth. And now, we're declared not guilty. At that point, the guilt is gone. The condemnation is gone. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. You ought to be smiling about that. In fact, I think we're too reserved in our Western culture. I, I think if you're a Christian, you ought to be up and praising God. Right? And uh, I am the same way, you know. I, I keep myself under control. But you know, when you begin to think of what Christ did for us in his death, in his burial, and his resurrection... That should bring you such joy that you can't help but rejoice in His goodness, in God's goodness, and God's love, and Christ's goodness, and Christ's love. There is forgiveness. Do you remember what it's like to walk around having a weight of guilt? thinking, despairing of life, thinking this life is not worth living because I've messed up. I've hurt other people. I've destroyed lives. I bear this weight of guilt and it drags me down to despair. But in Christ, there is no guilt. There is no burden. I, it, it, something's wrong when a Christian feels guilty. Now, don't get me wrong, we sin. But you know, there's an immediate remedy for that. John, in those little letters that he wrote said, uh, you shouldn't sin <laughs> in chapter 2 of 1 John. He says, but if you sin, there's an advocate. And in the first chapter, he says this. He says, if you confess, confess your sins, Jesus is righteous. He's just 
to forgive you your sins. Now, a lot of, for a lot of years of my life, I read that wrong. I understood that wrong. It's not something that I do that evokes forgiveness, that brings forgiveness to me. And the genius is in that word, confess. Uh, it's a Greek word, homo logeo, uh, word or to speak, and the prefix, the same. You're saying the same thing about your sin as God says. You're saying, yes, that thing that I did, I can find it in the scripture and it is absolutely wrong. And you're before God and you're saying that. This is not penance. This is acknowledging before God, saying to God, yes, I sinned, no, owning your sin." And you know, it might take some time for you to dig around in the scriptures and see the awfulness of that. And I think that's a good exercise. But you're always before God and you're saying, God, yes, I sing. But the very next thought that you ought to have is this. God is righteous to forgive me that sin because Jesus shed his blood. It is under the blood. And you know what you do then? You claim that forgiveness and you go on in your life. And what did Jesus told Peter when he asked, how many times should I forgive? And he said, 70 times 7. And if you commit that sin again, you do that same thing again. You confess that sin and you claim the blood. And you go on about your life. And if you sin that sin again and you confess, you, you confess your sin and you go on and you recognize that Jesus paid for that sin and you go on about your life. And you know I, what I've found? I've been in Christ for 60 years now and it took me a long time to understand this. But that's the way of Christian growth. Those sins begin to fall off. When you do that enough times those sins begin to fall off. You go to the Word of God and you see the awfulness of it and you see that Jesus paid for that sin. You go to the Scriptures and you see the... the you go to Isaiah 53 and see what He did in order to uh, save me from, to provide forgiveness for that sin. And it makes all the difference in your Christian life in dealing with sin. You go to uh, Romans chapter 8 where uh, there is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. And you remind yourself over and over and over again of what Christ did. And for you to continue as a Christian, for you to continue to carry guilt is a sin itself. Now, uh, woe be, and, and I, I've done it many times as a preacher. I've made people under the sound of my voice feel guilty. But I've come to a different conclusion. A preacher ought not try to make Christians feel guilty. Yes, there is the reality of sin. Preach sin, yes. But you are redeemed. You are not guilty. 
You are in Christ. And that's the way a preacher ought to preach. So, there is the personal application. Practical implications. We've touched on some of it. There ought to be joy. There ought to be a sense of no guilt, no condemnation. I sin, yes, but I confess that sin and I claim the just application of Jesus' blood for that sin. And I forgive others. Just like Jesus forgave me. That's hard. I mean, again, I don't want to be unkind, but you people. (laughs) My wife's not in here, but I was, oh, Lord, my wife. Seems like she's, and people, they, outside in the world, they abuse me. They call me names. They mock me. They hurt me. And God, there seems to be no justice. And not only that, I hear tell of of Christians being tortured. I mean, physically tortured because they're Christians. And, they, and there seems to be no punishment for it. And they go on that way. And they live that way. Always in fear of what somebody else is going to do to them because they're a Christian. God, I've got a better idea. You know, somebody's going to get in trouble when he says that, right? (laughs) I got a better idea, God. Take me to heaven right now. That way, I don't have to deal with people. I don't have to live this life that you tell me how to live in the church letters. I don't have to worry about all that. I mean, after all... uh, We're going to be perfect. In fact, God, not only don't take just don't just take me to heaven, take all these people to heaven. That wouldn't that be great? We'd be singing, we'd be praising God around a a, a rainbow uh, backed throne, and we'd be si- singing with uh, with angels and. We'd be perfect, and there'd be nobody to bother us, and we wouldn't have affliction, and we wouldn't have pain. So there's a little uh, ditty that comes to my mind. Uh, it runs this way: "To dwell above with the saints I love." Oh, that will be glory. To dwell below with the saints I know. 
Well, that's another story. <laughs> you know, isn't that the way it is? You have to deal with people around you. Even the closest offend you. And you're called on to forgive and forgive and forgive over and over again. Why is it that God just won't take us to heaven with him and be done with it? As soon as I say something like that, a scripture comes to my mind and comes from John 20 and verse 21. And Jesus said to his disciples this, a very simple saying. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. We're here for a purpose. What is the purpose of our life? Why did God leave us here? It's the fellowship of the gospel. Folks, it's the koinonion. We're all gathered together for a purpose that God designs for us as churches. That God is all about making a new humanity and creating a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. And he has invited us to join with him in that endeavor. And that word koinonia, we, we should stop right now and go through all the New Testament references to that word, to that idea. When the Apostle Paul was going to leave a city, he was going to go out of Ephesus, and he was going to go to some other place with the gospel, you know what the people did? They brought him a gift. They were sharing, and there is that word. We find it often sharing in our Bible. Sharing in that gospel endeavor. And we as a church, we share in that gospel endeavor in Poland. And we share in that gospel endeavor in Africa. And we share in that gospel endeavor endeavor together in our community. It was uh, asked at our senior saints meeting uh, last Thursday. We read the, this verse of that we in Colossians 1 and 9 through uh, following and uh, where the Apostle Paul is praying for the Colossians, he prays that they would walk worthy of the Lord Jesus, that they would be strengthened with all might and power. And the question was asked, what was that power for? What power? Healing power? Casting out demon kind of power? Oh, something far more difficult than that. Power to forgive. That is not a human characteristic to forgive. 
I want to, you know, if you know me, you know I like to tell stories, and so I'm going to tell you a story, all right? Not the Bible, but related. This story comes from the last century, and I'll begin, pick up the story in 1939. There was a young teenage girl. Her parents were missionaries in Japan. They had been missionaries there some time. But in 1939, the relations between the United States and Japan were getting very tense. The United States had, had uh, put an embargo on uh, Japan because they had invaded China. And uh, <clears throat> the, her parents were getting worried. Her name was Peggy. Peggy Corvell. You can look it up if you... Get on the internet and look it up. Look her name up. It's a real story. She, she, the, her parents said, this is getting too dangerous for us. We've got to get Peggy out of here. They moved to Manila. And uh, Peggy graduated from high school in Manila. And uh, they sent her home to live with uh, uh, some friends, relatives. And uh, that was 1939. They were there for a few years. There's another fellow that I want to talk to you about who was involved on that, in the air raids in China, and he became well-known. He did a great job as an aviator. In fact, he was, he was uh, an ace Japanese aviator. And because he had done so well in the raid on China, the hierarchy of the uh, Japanese Navy said, now you go and put together a raid on America, on Pearl Harbor. His name was uh, Mitsuo Fushida. I probably murdered that name. But, uh, <clears throat> and he planned it, and he uh, put together his team uh, aviators that he knew, and they made the raid December 7, 1941, on Pearl Harbor. And as far as he was concerned, it was a success. The first wave, he flew the first wave, uh, and he stayed in the air after the second wave came. And he was uh, very well read, and he was uh, an author, and he recorded everything that happened. And, he, and he, after the raid, he called out to his uh, commander, Tora, 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 America is beaten. They, their carriers are destroyed. It was a great victory. And he great, got great accolades. A few weeks after the raid on Pearl Harbor, the Japanese invaded the Philippines, and specifically Manila. The Corvells, Peggy wasn't there, the Corvells took their little church and went to hide up in the hills. They were there for a year, a little bit more than a year, and finally the Japanese found them. 
and they were going to execute every one of them, man, woman, and child. Peggy's parents, it came reported to her that they asked before they would be executed if they could have a half hour to pray. Look at their Bible. And they did. They allowed them that. And then they slaughtered the whole church. That came to uh, Peggy's ears. And she had a hatred immediately. She's a Christian. And she began seeing in the Bible and hearing the Lord Jesus from the cross, Father, forgive them. And seeing what the Scripture said about loving your enemies and forgiveness, the attitude of forgiveness. And she decided that she would volunteer to go to... Be, after all, she spoke fluent Japanese. She would go a volunteer and she would go to uh, prisoner of war camps and the camp that she landed in actually was here in Utah, very interestingly. And uh, there she preached the gospel. She gave clothes. She gave food. She helped out at the prisoner of war camp. Back to Fushida. He flew many more missions. He flew in the uh, Battle of Midway. Midway, you know, was a turning point in the war in the South Pacific. All the battles before Midway, the Japanese won. All the battles after Midway, the uh, United States won, or the, those forces won, the Allied forces won. Soon after that, uh, Fushida realized that this, was going, this war was going the wrong way. He got an appendicitis attack was on desk duty for the remainder of the war. There's another fellow I want to tell you about. His name was Deshazar, Jacob Deshazar. And he was one of the aviators in the Doolittle raids. And if you remember, these were the, this was the bombing of Tokyo and other cities around. And uh, they flew off of air, aircraft carriers and uh, they were out further from Japan than they should have been when they took off and they knew that they were going to have to ditch their planes, drop their bombs, ditch their planes and try to get to the western reaches of China where they might get picked up by someone that would be friendly. Most of them did, did not and uh, Jacob de Shazar was one that did not. He was picked up by the Japanese, put into a Japanese prisoner of war camp and the conditions were horrible for him. He was beaten regularly. He was starved, just a bag of bones, when he finally was rescued. But something happened to Jacob de Shazar while he was in that prisoner war camp. One of his friends was killed. Another one died of starvation. And he was in desperate straits and he asked, he was in solitary confinement, he asked the Japanese uh, soldier that was over him if he could have a Bible. 
and for th- they'll let him have it miraculously, providentially. And he read that Bible, and for three weeks he poured over that Bible, and he was struck by the fact that Jesus taught. He'd never read the Bible before. Jesus taught that you're to forgive your enemies. Do good to them that hate you. And he was struck by the fact that Jesus, hanging on a cross, said, Father, forgive him, for they know not what they do. And Jacob de Shazar was wonderfully saved at the end of those three weeks. He was rescued at the end of the war. We came back to America and determined that he was going to go back to Japan and preach the gospel there in Japan, be a missionary to Japan. Okay, now back to Fuchida. The war is ended, and he is, he lived by the Bushido code, uh, kill your enemies, kill yourself if you can't kill your enemies, no quarter, no forgiveness. If someone comes and takes a friend or a family's life, you are honor bound to go and seek revenge. That was the code that he lived by. And yet, and Japan was defeated. And he was defeated himself. He was called to go to testify at the war crimes trials. And he, that he hated America even at that time. And he thought it was really unjust that he was compelled to testify against uh, his own people, his own leaders. Between that first testimony that he gave and the second time he was called in to testify, he found some men that he thought were dead. His a com- uh, airman that he had served with. And he, they had been prisoners of war. They had ditched their planes, were picked up by Americans and sent over to the United States in, in uh, prison of war camps. Some of those men served their time in a prisoner of war camp in Utah. <laughs> and they heard the message of the gospel from the lips of a young woman and they were saved. They came back to Japan and Fushida met with them and they gave him the testimony of their salvation. He expected to hear stories of horrendous abuse in the prisoner of war camps. But instead he heard stories of kindness and love and gospel. And he just absolutely couldn't believe it. It was so countercultural to everything, every fiber of his being. And he just was just torn up about all that. Couldn't, by his, he wrote several books, you can read those books. It was very disturbing to him. Then comes the second time he's supposed to come in and testify at the war crimes trials. As he's getting on the plane, 
or on the train, I should say, at the train station, there's a fellow there handing out gospel tracts. And he picked up one of those gospel tracts, and it was the story of Jacob de Shazar and his experience. You got to back up a little bit. I forgot something that was... Fushida's hometown was Hiroshima. He, between those two times that he had to testify, and when, when he had heard the gospel message from his friends, he and a, a group of men went to visit Hiroshima. And they saw the devastation and the horrors of war. And at that time, he resolved, no more war. I'm going to do what I can to find no more war. Very interestingly, all those people that went in that delegation died soon after of radiation poisoning, and he was the only one that did not. This is his testimony. Okay, so he read this track about the life of Deshazar and the abuse that he suffered and the fact that Jesus Christ died for his sins, and that Christ, that he was now in Japan preaching that gospel of forgiveness. And what do you suppose happened to Mitsuo Fushida? He got saved. (laughs) He began investigating the Bible, and he trusted Christ the Lord Jesus Christ, who he had a, years, a few years before never knew, and he was saved. And he came to America, and he and Deshazar toured all over America, preaching the gospel. Fuchida toured with Billy Graham, <laughs> and he wrote a couple books about his testimony, and you can see his testimony online if you look it up on YouTube. Him and Deshazar are sitting together, and they're talking about the gospel. <laughs> That story, what's the point? Just this. Beloved, we're called on to forgive. We're called on to communicate the gospel. And do you see the power of forgiveness in communicating the gospel? This is why we don't go right to heaven. Because There are people that need to hear of the glories of the gospel. And we need to forgive so that we will enhance that message. And that message will have increased power. Now I know we're not in wartime. And uh, it seems such a far distant thing for us to even think about being tortured for Christ. You know, we live such a cushy life, don't we? But we're called on to live redemptively. We're called on to live like Christ lived so others will come to know him. And how do we do that? We follow what God has told us in these church letters, the practical Christian life, love your wife, be a good father, teach your children, love your husband, love others, be kind, be affectionate, forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive and so many other things. 
so that Christ will be glorified. Christ will be magnified. Others will come to him and glorify his name. Isn't that thrilling? Isn't it great to be forgiven? Let's pray.